0: So what is the purpose of your life? What are your goals? What do you live for? If the purpose of our life is something that is earthly, if we are storing up earthly treasures, then when roadblocks to those earthly treasures occur, and don't get me wrong, I should say, don't confuse yourself, Roadblocks will come. But when those roadblocks come, then despair and depression will set in. So, what do you live for? What are your goals? In America, we are sold this idea that we should live for, or that our goals, that our purpose is to live a comfortable life. And so we're sold on this idea of retirement, that you should work this huge portion of your life, work it away, slave away, and save up as much money as possible, so that way, you know, maybe the last 10, 15 years, maybe even 20 years, you can live a really comfortable life. You can golf every day, and sip lemonade for the rest of your life. But what happens when the stock market tanks, recession hits, and you begin to see your retirement fund quickly, quickly dwindle? Despair and depression begin to set in. What if you think that what's really going to make you happy, what the, the purpose of this life, the goal of this life, is to get married and have kids? Now, don't get me wrong. That's, that's one of the first commands God gives humanity, right? Be fruitful and multiply. So it's a good thing. But what if that is your purpose? Then when you hit your 30s and your 40s, and you still haven't gotten married, and you still don't have kids depression, and despair begin to seep in. Maybe you think the purpose of life is to have the most fun possible, to travel the world, and to go mountain biking, and to get as many experiences in under your belt before you die. But then you have an accident. Or maybe you get diagnosed with something that is terminal, and you realize that you will never get to experience all that you desired, then depression and despair begin to seep in. What do you live for? What's your purpose? What's your goal? If our goal is set on an earthly treasure, then when a roadblock hits, depression and despair will seep into our lives. And we'll miss the fact that those roadblocks can be a way that God can mature us and grow us in his grace. When we get so caught up in living a comfortable, pain-free life, we miss the fact that pain is a megaphone God uses to scream to a hurting world. Dr. Paul Brandt writes a book called The Gift of Pain, and he calls it a gift because pain gives us a clue that something is wrong. So Dr. Paul Brandt, he was a a doctor in India, and he was working with leprosy patients. Now, most of us, we we think leprosy is a skin disease. And we think that because we see, like, funky stuff happening with leprosy uh, or lepers' skin. But what he discovered was leprosy actually attacks the nervous system. And so what happens with, with lepers is that they can no longer feel. And so when they touch something that is hot... They don't realize that they're getting burned. When they get a cut, they don't dress the wound and take care of the wound. And instead, the wound gets infected. And so we see a skin disease when really it's attacking a nervous system, and they can't feel pain. So he figured this out, and he started touring India, working with leper patients. And word pretty soon got out, because they were living in their own colonies. Word got out that there was this doctor that could help. And so any time he would show up in a new leper colony, the lepers would come running up to meet him. And he recalls this one time when he comes into a new colony and and it's announced over the loudspeaker that, that the doctor is here and everybody starts running up to see him. Well, he sees this one guy who's running on a broken ankle. And as he's running on this broken ankle, it just gets worse and worse. And this guy can't feel any pain. So he doesn't notice what's happening to his ankle as he runs. But soon, it starts to crack more and more. And pretty soon, the bone is actually sticking straight through the skin. And he's just running on splintered bone. And he gets up to the doctor with a big smile on his face. Like, hey, I won the race. And he looks down at this bone that now he has to pick the dirt out of. Pain is a gift. It's God shouting to the world, something is wrong. That guy needed the gift of pain to realize something was wrong with his ankle. He shouldn't be running on it anymore. But in particular in America, we like to numb our pain. We like to try to numb our pain any way possible with television, with podcasts, with drugs, with alcohol. Anything, anything that would help numb my pain so I can't hear the message God is sending to me. Or we look at that roadblock and we feel the pain and we think, forget you, God. and We let depression and despair seep in. Pain is a megaphone God uses to let us know something is wrong. And it is a way that God matures us and grows us in His grace. And that's what we're going to study today as we look at Psalm 102. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 102. Psalm. No one actually knows the exact date Psalm 102 was written, uh, but most scholars believe it was written around the exile time. So it, uh, if you are familiar with your Old Testament exile time, think around the time Daniel is writing. And if you're not familiar with, with Israel's history, uh, you know they, I think we all know about the Exodus God raises up Moses, he gives them the promised land, and as they're entering into the promised land, he makes a covenant with them. We're going to actually talk about this covenant quite a bit, so I want us to thoroughly understand it. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. You can find it in Deuteronomy, and it's written with a bunch of if-thens. We've talked about this a little bit. It's called a uh, bilateral covenant. So it's not a unilateral covenant, which is God saying, hey, I'm going to make this happen. When he makes a covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham, hey, Abraham... I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the world through this nation. There's nothing Abraham has to do. God said, I'm going to make it happen. The bilateral covenant is different. He takes Israel aside and he says, hey, Israel, here's what's going to happen. If you remain faithful to me and are obedient to me, then I'm going to bless you. But if you are unfaithful and you worship other gods, I will raise up another nation to discipline you. And so as they enter the promised land, they hear the bilateral covenant, they reaffirm the bilateral covenant, they know the ifs, thens, they know what they need to do, and yet they continually turn their back on God, they continually remain unfaithful to God with little bits here and there where a king is faithful. And because of the little bits here and there, God, although he disciplines them, doesn't absolutely trash the city. Until about 596, 600 BC. And Israel has gotten so bad, and they have broken the covenant so far that God says, I'm going to raise up a nation to utterly destroy you. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah tells us about this. That's why Jeremiah was so hated. He saw that they had broke the covenant, and he's warning them. He's shouting at them, hey, guys, God is going to raise up Babylon, and Babylon's going to utterly destroy us because of your sin. And then the book of Lamentation is written while he's watching this happen. And Jeremiah is watching Jerusalem get totally decimated. And he writes the book of Lamentation weeping over Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is a lot of scholars... So a lot of scholars will place this at that exile. We're not entirely sure where it's at during the exile, but they'll also kind of pair it up. There's a lot of uh, references to Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3 talks about Jerusalem as a city, but it refers to it oftentimes in the third person or with a he or I. So there's some first person, third person pronouns in there, and so uh, a lot of scholars will, t- will look at this and say, this is a call out at, for the city of Jerusalem that all of Israel should be expressing together. And that's an interesting thought, that it was a, it was a universal uh, cry from Israel. So hopefully, as I explain that, you've turned there by now. A prayer of the one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let me let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me; answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. He regards the prayer of the destitute, and does not despise their, despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That He looked down from His holy height, from heaven the earth looked at. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem, his praise. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. For whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. All right, so we got a lot... Going on here, let's jump right in. This is a prayer of one who is afflicted when he is a faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So this heading gives us an idea of what's going on. The headings came a little later, but, but we don't, we're not sure how much later. They're, they're close enough to the date of the original psalm that we know that they knew uh, uh, enough about the psalm that uh, we don't. So there are sometimes there's reference there where we have no clue what the heading is referencing, but it is clearly referencing something that the psalmist knew. So we know that there's a close link between the heading and the original psalm, but the heading is not part of the original psalm. Uh, So it is a, a heading that lets us know that this is a prayer of someone who is afflicted, who is faint, and it's giving us a clue on how to pray when we are afflicted. When we have this depression and despair setting in, this is how we should pray. Do you often wonder, how should I pray? Sometimes we think we should just make up prayers. And you know what? Prayer is simply talking to God. And I think any time you're praying, that's not a bad thing. You should be praying without ceasing. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us, right? Pray without ceasing. So we should be in constant communication with prayer, or with God, through prayer. But there are times when we need some specific ways to pray. You know, I think about marriage counseling. Sometimes you go to marriage counseling, and they they give you tools on how to communicate with your spouse. Those tools are helpful. I kind of think of it like that. This is a tool on how to communicate with God. Those tools are helpful. Not that if you say these exact words, it will then produce the results that you want. This, we, uh, learning how to pray does not mean that we are mystics. This is not an incantation making us think that, hey, if I just say the right prayer and jump through the right hoops, then God is obligated to provide for me what I want. But it is showing us or giving us a template on proper ways to pray. I think one of the first things we need to note is that there is emotion here. Oftentimes we think we should pray without emotion, But there is emotion. He's crying out to God. He's expressing his grief. He's expressing his fear. There are times when even King David expresses his anger with God. God is big enough to handle your emotion. It's okay to pray with emotion. But what does he do after he prays with emotion? He gives us a correct theology. So he gives us some emotion, he gives us some heart issues, and that's important for us to examine, why are you upset? What is the real heart issue at hand? And that's always followed up with theology. We shouldn't let our emotion dictate our theology, but our theology should begin to dictate our emotion. And so what does he do? He expresses his grief, he expresses, he cries out, he gives the complaint, and then he gives correct theology. And as he gives that correct theology, then he gives another shout out to God. And that shout out is, God, I trust you because you are everlasting. So let's go ahead. That's kind of the outline. Let's go ahead and dig in. He starts off with, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Now this answer me speedily in the day when I call is not showing impatience. It's not that this guy is impatient with God, but it's showing that there is an urgency here. That there is, he is looking and facing imminent danger. And so he's crying out to God, Hey, God, this is an urgent thing in my life. Now, it's okay for us to be urgent even when God is not urgent. We have such a small viewpoint. We, have, we live such small, finite lives that we can be impatient or we can be urgent about something that God is very patient on. I kind of uh, liken it to my kids. You know, my kids' life has been very short. And so they don't always see the bigger picture that I get to see. They don't know what I know. They don't know that tomorrow, the thing that they're screaming about right now won't even matter to them tomorrow. That helps me give... Patience, or that helps give me patience when dealing with my kids. Sometimes a baby, when they're crying for food, all they know is that moment, right? So they're going to scream for that food. But you know that food will be there in a minute as you prepare the food for them. That helps give you patience. The same thing is similar with us and God. 80, 90 years, maybe, But God is eternal. What seems like a lifetime to us is just a blink of an eye for God. So God is patient. And we can take comfort that what is urgent for me might not be so urgent for God. Because he sees a bigger picture. But if you'll notice, verses 1 and 2, you've probably read them before. Or you've heard these words before. And these words are actually used quite a bit throughout the Psalms. I think there's a good reason for this, and that is it's a reminder. When a psalmist reuses words from another psalmist, it's a reminder that you're not the only one that has ever struggled. You're not the only one that has ever felt this heartbreak. You're not the only one that has ever felt this hurt. You are not alone in your hurt. And not only is it a reminder that you're not the only one that's been hurt, but you're also Reminded that God has answered other people's hurt. God hears your prayer. He's heard prayers of people who have been hurt before you. He hears your prayer. It's a good reminder you're not alone, and God hears. So he goes from this cry for help to the complaint. Verses 3 through 11 are going to be the complaint. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. So this gives us a picture of a life consumed too fast. How quickly does fire consume a piece of wood? When we just experienced this a couple weeks ago when the tunnel or the pipeline fire and the tunnel fire were burning, right? Just think about how quickly, it amazed me at how quickly that spread. How old were some of those trees? And within a week, 26,000 acres burned. It's pretty quick. That's the picture he's giving us here that our lives burn that fast. It's like smoke, it goes up quickly and then vanishes. That's another thing about that smoke. You know, well, well, something else that amazed me about that fire, we live on Silver Saddle, and we didn't smell any smoke. In fact, if I looked south, I couldn't even tell that, we were, that there was a fire. My family, all the way in Denver, Colorado, uh, they couldn't see the mountains, the mountain range there, because the smoke from our fire was blowing so hard over there. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Just to think that smoke traveled that fast. But then the smoke was gone. That's that picture of our life. How quickly, how fleeting our life is. Not only is it like smoke, but my bones burn like a furnace. You know, you get that furnace burning nice and hot. And you throw another log on. And how quickly does that log go up? That's the picture here. Our lives are not meant forever. We are here on this earth for a short period of time. And young people, I look at you right now. It feels like forever. I can remember being 15, and it felt like forever until 16, and I got my driver's license. And then I got my driver's license, and it felt like forever until I graduated high school. And then it felt like forever until the next step. And so often in your lives, it feels like forever until the next event. But there will come a time where you'll look back and you'll be like, man, that was the shortest period of time. And then you'll be thinking, man, time is flying. Where has time gone? And it will almost feel like it's out of control. Don't waste your life. It's like smoke. It will go up before you know it. Don't waste your life. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. So I think a lot of Americans don't quite get this because a lot of Americans live where there's a lot of water and they have nice, luscious lawns. Every time we go back to Colorado, uh, one of my middle boy actually, goes and he like rubs the grass and he's like, oh man, this is so beautiful, the lawns. Unfortunately, he's also allergic to grass, so then you know he starts sniffling and breaking out. But... But uh, I think we understand this more than most Americans do because we see how quickly the grass withers here, right? Especially if you're in Donny Park. Sometimes we go into town and we see nice lawns and we're like, wow. But in Donny Park, oh man, I don't know who has a nice lawn out here. We see how fast that withers. Right now it's getting green because of the monsoon rains, but it won't be long until it's brown again. Once again, he's painting this picture that life is short. I forget to eat my bread. This line is just showing that he is so devastated by what is happening in his life that he has forgotten to eat. Have you ever felt that grief? Have you ever been that devastated where you weren't even hungry anymore? Where you would forget to eat? I've been in places where I was just so consumed with grief. Someone actually had to come by my side and be like, "Aaron, you have to eat." "Well, I'm not hungry. I don't feel hungry at all." "I don't I know you don't feel hungry, but it's been 2 days. You need to eat." That's where this man is at right now. That's where the psalmist is at. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. So this is just a picture that he's wasting away in agony. He's wasting, he's feeling so devastated that he is wasting away in agony. I am like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake, I am a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Now we don't actually know what type of bird this is, and some people kind of debate what the bird is. We're not sure, but I don't think it's even about the bird. The main point in this section is is the place. And if you look at the places, it's a wilderness. It's a waste place. It's a housetop. Both the waste places and the wildernesses were thought of as evil places, places where demons would dwell. And so you begin to get this picture as he paints being an owl in this wilderness, in this waste, and even on the housetop, of loneliness. He is devastated, he is in grief, and he is alone. Grieving alone. Oftentimes, when we are devastated, when we are going through grief, we isolate ourselves and we become more lonely. And the problem is that loneliness only makes the grief more It only makes the grief worse. We have a great community here. If you are lonely, if you feel like you are in a wasteland, a wilderness, if you feel like you are by yourself, give me a call. Let's go get some coffee. I'd love to connect with you. And not just me, but if you look around this room, you will see several other people that are willing to walk with you in your grief. Don't let grief consume you and make you feel more alone. So that's what he feels like. He feels alone. He feels isolated. He feels alienated. He feels like an outcast. All the day, my enemies taunt me Those who deride me use my name for a curse. So, if you'll notice, the enemy is not the cause of the pain here, but the enemy is laughing at his pain and making it all the worse. In fact, not only do they laugh at him, but those who deride me use my name for a curse. Literally, this means that they uh, use it as an oath. They use their name as an oath. So, the oath would look something like this. I will pay you back, and if I don't, may I be like so-and-so. That's the oath that they're giving. That's how bad his life is viewed. So if you look at the historical context, this is probably most likely a reference to the Edomites. So when Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon and they were being taken away as hostages, as slaves, the Edomites actually came to the road and laughed at them in in their grief. And that's what they're, this is the reference to that, that the Edomites are actually laughing at them. And the Edomites are looking at one another saying, hey, you know what? If we don't fulfill our promises, may we be like Jerusalem. May we be overtaken and destroyed by Babylon and taken away as slaves. That's what they're saying here. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. So in antiquity, uh, that when they were going through grief, they would put ashes on their forehead. And that's what he's getting at here, that, that he's got ashes on his forehead, and they're actually dropping down, they're mixing with his tears, and he's eating ashes and tears. Because of your indignation. So because we find out why all of this trouble is finally on him. It's not his enemy's fault. Now we see the, what is happening because of your indignation and anger. Now remember, he's crying out to God. So when he uses the term your, he's saying God's. So we could say, because of God's indignation and anger. Indignation here is wrath stirred by injustice. So it's not just indignation for indignation's sake. It's not just anger for anger's sake. It's that God has seen injustice in the land of Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, and he is acting upon that. And and the anger is strong displeasure. And so some people wrestle with this idea of an indignant and wrathful and angry God. And they don't believe in a wrathful, indignant, angry God. Because God is love. And I agree with you, God is love. And it is because of God's love that he is wrathful, indignant, and angry. Think about it. What was happening in Israel or what I should say is more specifically, what was happening in Jerusalem at this time was sick and wicked. They were taking their babies to a place called Gehenna, and they were sacrificing their babies to Moloch. They were introducing pagan temple worship into the temple that was dedicated to God. I won't get into everything that pagan temple worship included. But it was sick and perverted stuff. So everything a human, a wicked human heart could contrive in rebellion against God to be wicked and perverted, that's what the people of Jerusalem were doing at that time. Now think about a God who is love. Who's looking down at the wickedness, the absolute abuse and use of his creation, the abuse and use of other people. And he just shrugs his shoulder and says, but I love them. That's not a loving God. That's a careless God. A God who loves his creation, who loves his people, as he watches them get murdered and abused is wrathful and indignant and angry. They had aroused his wrath because they were so rebellious against him and they were abusing one another. I think of it as, if someone broke into my house and tortured my children, you better believe I'd be angry. And I was angry because I love my children. I'm not going to sit by and watch my children be tortured. Neither is God. He intervened. He stepped into human history. And it is because they broke their covenant with God and they were so wicked that he raised up Babylon to discipline them. That is the cause of their trouble. That is the cause of Jerusalem's problem. For you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. Because they broke the covenant, God disciplined them. Now I think it is important to mention that we are not a theocracy. In Jerusalem, they were a theocracy. Every king was actually supposed to represent King Yahweh. So it was really King Yahweh, King God, and then the king was supposed to represent him. And the Shekinah glory was in the temple guiding Israel. He had a bilateral covenant with them. There is no bilateral covenant with America. He, the president does not represent President Yahweh. That's not how America works. So I think it is important for us to make that distinction between Israel and America. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So verse 11 is once again showing how short life is, and he recognizes that his life is almost over. So once again, in antiquity, they didn't have electricity. When the sun went down, your day ended. So you were sun watchers. You would watch the sun. You would watch the placement of the sun, and you would watch the shadows. You would watch how the shadows would grow long. And if it was growing very long, you knew you only had a little bit of time left to finish up all your activities of the day. We don't have that. You know, we see the sun go down, and we flick on a light. Or if it gets too dark, we just flick on a light, and we continue to work. But the whole point of that is The long shadow, the evening shadow, was an idea that his life was almost over. I wither away like grass. So that's the same idea, that his time is almost up. But you. So his time is almost up, and then this is a great contrast. But you, once again, God. We are short. Our life here is short. But you, God, are enthroned forever. This word enthroned uh, signifies his rule and his reign over the world. And he rules and he reigns how long? It's eternal. It's forever. There will be no end to his reign, to his rule. We are like grass. We are like smoke. We are gone in a heartbeat but God's rule and his reign will last forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. This is just getting, simply getting at that. Even after we die, God will move forward. Even after we die, there will be a group of people that worship God, that praise God. Sometimes we look around at the church and we look around at America and we live a fearful life. We're afraid for the next generation but we don't trust that God will raise up a next generation that will also glorify his name. Throughout the history of Christendom, there have been people that have said, the next generation is worthless. And I think that's wrong. I don't think it's okay for us to do. I think we should be able to look at the next generation and say, God's going to do amazing things through you guys. God's going to continue to proclaim His name. He's going to continue to glorify Himself. And even if the rest of the world turns, God will still have a church. And He will still be working through His church. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. So this is just simply that this... This psalmist was a good theologian. He knew that they had broken the covenant. He knew that it was because they had broken the covenant that they were being disciplined. But he also knew that there would be an end to the discipline. And so he's begging God to let this time come that that the discipline would be over. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Essentially what he's saying here is that they loved the land. That they loved where God had put them. I think one thing that we can grab here a principle that we can grab here is that it is okay to be patriotic. The Israelites loved Israel. That's okay. It's okay to celebrate the 4th of July. It's okay to be patriotic. But don't confuse patriotism with godliness. Although the Israelites loved Israel, the nation, they would broken the covenant and had turned their back on God. Being patriotic does not mean that you are being godly. To love America is, is not necessarily a godly virtue. But you can love America and you can love God. It's important for us to know where our true citizenship is at. Well, we are on earth, we are American citizens, and we do have a civic duty Here on earth. But that does not trump our heavenly duty. Because first and foremost, we are citizens of heaven. If you have ever recognized that you are a sinner, you have rebelled against God, and therefore you have been separated from God and you deserve eternal death, but realize that God in his love for you came and paid the price by dying on the cross, and you have put your faith and trust in Christ's work on the cross, you are no longer considered a sinner, unrighteous. You are now considered righteous, holy, just, and a citizen of heaven, and an ambassador of Christ. And that is your first and foremost priority. It's okay to be patriotic. It's okay to love America. It's okay to care for America. But not at the expense of caring for heaven. You are first and foremost a heavenly citizen. Don't confuse patriotism with godliness. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Now what's interesting in verse 15 is he's speaking as though the future has already happened. So remember, they're still in exile, but he's saying, hey, when you do this, the nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. So this is what's going to happen. It, and he's speaking like it's already happened, because he's so sure that this is what God will do. And what will happen is the world will fear the name, and they will glorify God. When God acts, people recognize. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. This is just saying that it's as good as done. He's so He so trusts God that it's as good as done that this will happen. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. To regard means to turn, listen, and see. So God has turned and he's listened to the destitute, the prayer of the destitute. Literally in the Hebrew, this is naked. So he turns and listens to the naked. Now, naked in that culture represented defenselessness, represented weakness, and helplessness. So what he's saying here is that the weak and the defenseless and the helpless, God turns and listens to. In your time of grief, in your time of despair, God turns and he hears you. He listens. Take comfort. And not only does he hear and he listen, but he does not despise their prayer. Essentially, what he's saying is that God, in all of his glory and in all of his resources, will come to help Israel, who has neither glory nor resources during their exile. They will learn to become dependent upon God. In America, it is really easy for us to become independent, to think that we don't need God, or even to just give lip service to dependence upon God. But a gut check is, when the recession hits, when the stock market falls, and you see your retirement fund dwindling, and you see your emergency savings dwindling, do you trust in your own resources? Or do you trust in God? It's a gut check. We can trust in God. And the outcome might not be exactly what we want. But you can still trust in God. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So 18 through 22 is going to give us the expectation. So we've seen his... uh, statement of confidence in God, now we're going to see an expectation. And this expectation is that this will happen. In fact, it's going to happen, so let's write it down so that we can record when the people who haven't even been born yet can look back and see how God answered this prayer. God is going to raise up Ezra and Nehemiah, and he's going to use Ezra and Nehemiah to fulfill this prayer. And then what can happen is the people can look back and say, hey, this is a prayer that came even before Ezra and Nehemiah, and God has fulfilled it, and it will be to his glory. I think it's important for us to sometimes write down some of our prayers. Write down how God has answered your prayer. This is also an important way of or reason why we share testimonies. Why do you tell your story? Is it to glorify yourself? I think it's to glorify God. I recognize that there if, if it weren't for God working in my heart, I would be an extremely selfish jerk. But God keeps working in my heart. He keeps maturing me in his grace. And now I'm less of a a selfish jerk. And by God's grace, when I'm 60, I'll be even less of a selfish jerk. But it's not me. It's God that's doing it in me. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the earth, the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gathered together and kingdoms to worship the Lord essentially he's just saying that God is going to act on for their good and for his glory God will act for their good and for his glory. And then we get to verse 23. 23 through 28 is going to show us that only God lasts. Once again, he's giving us this correct theology. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. It's important for us to understand this Mosaic Covenant once again. That Jerusalem was cut short because they had rebelled. They had broken the covenant. And so the strength and the course uh, uh, and the shortened days are because they broke the covenant. I think that's exactly what he's getting at here, that Jerusalem could have continued on, but because they had rebelled, they were cut off. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. So this is a plea, this is one last plea, connecting our short lives with God's Longevity. In the midst of my days, do not take me. And then he follows that up with, you whose years endure throughout all generations. You whose years endure throughout all generations. God has a greater purpose for your life than just comfort, than just fun, God has a great purpose for your life. But the only way that we can live that purpose out is to be connected and to recognize that he endures forever. He continues on describing how he endures throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. So a long time ago, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So you created the earth, you created the heavens, they will perish, but you will remain. So even the heavens and the earth will fail but God will remain. And I like how he puts up these next two lines. You will, you, they will all wear out like a garment. Think of your favorite shirt. And you wore that shirt for a while. Pretty soon that shirt became paper thin. I have a hard time getting rid of shirts. But Jen every now and then says, Aaron, I can see through that shirt. It's time to get rid of it. That's how God sees the heavens and the earth and he follows it up with you will change them like a robe and they will pass away how often do you change your clothes probably every day right i think majority of us some of my kids will go a week and we're like you stink you need to change that but most of us every day changing our clothes that's how god is with the heavens and the earth he's changing it like a robe Our youngest daughter, she loves to just change her clothes like three, four times a day. God's changing the heavens and the earth. Think about how we view the Grand Canyon. I mean, the Grand Canyon's so big, and it seems so old, and compared to us, it is. Think about how we view the mountains, the ocean, the sun, and the moon, and they seem so huge and and old, and compared to us, they are, and yet God changes them like clothing. That's how young they are compared to God. He is eternal. Our lives are just simply vapor. And it's kind of depressing. Because you might be striving for that nice retirement, to live that comfortable life. And that roadblock might come. It's depressing to think, man, I've only got this much of my life. It's going quick. I'm 42 years old. I'm probably halfway there. It's almost over. And I'm not even guaranteed tomorrow. 42, if I live out a natural, healthy life, I'm halfway there, but I could get hit by a semi tomorrow. And it's almost depressing until we read the next two lines. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So Hebrews 1 connects this line with Jesus. That Jesus is the same, and His years have no end. That He is eternal. And then 28 is the key. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall... Shall be established before you. So, our lives, if there is no God, our lives are disp- depressing. Our lives are meaningless. And even if there is a God, but we don't live according to God, our lives are depressing. Our lives are meaningless. Even if we're striving for fun, even if you are successful at reaching your goals. And you become the richest man on earth and you never have to work again and you can just do whatever you want whenever you want and you accomplish your goals. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, what did it really matter? And so this psalmist looks during their exile and, and it seems their goals have been put down. There's been roadblocks. They know they're not going to live the life that they thought they were going to live. For the majority of human history, the majority of humans have lived like that. And so what keeps us from letting despair and depression set in? It's being connected with God. It's recognizing that although my life is finite, that I am just a vapor in this world, God is eternal, and God's eternal plan includes me. And God's eternal plan, He has given me an assignment and I can make an eternal impact by sharing His gospel, by living out the assignment that He has in my life. The only thing that gives my life value, the only thing that gives my life meaning is being connected to my Creator. And the same is true for you. The only reason why our lives have any meaning, any significance. is because God has given your life meaning and significance. And the only thing that matters at the end of the day, at the end of our life, when we look back at the end, the only thing that will truly matter is did you live God's assignment for you? Or were you living your own assignment? Were you living for yourself, trying to accomplish something that's meaningless in the end? Or did you live with eternity in mind, asking God, what would you have me do? Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given our lives meaning. And it's not just to accomplish Safety or security—it's not just to accomplish, accomplish comfort of my own life, but that you have given us a bigger purpose, a bigger meaning, a bigger goal. And we recognize when we don't reach those goals, and and we start to feel depressed or despair because we're not reaching them. That's just you using a megaphone to say, "Hey, you have lost track of what really matters." And Lord, we pray that when we would come back to what really matters, you and your gospel, and sharing that gospel with others, that we may all grow in your grace. In your name we pray.